We are in our third and final week talking about uh, three big ideas of what it looks like to move forward in faith, to really be on track, whether, uh, whether maybe uh, you are just kind of starting out life in faith or, or really not even sure yet where you are with that. This is a, a great series to understand really what the, the three foundational ideas are in many ways of the Christian faith, um, and if you've been a Christian for a long time, but are, I mean, all of us can start to get off track a little bit, can start to find detours in our life, and, and just stuff comes up, and so this is a, a great series to really either get on track for the first time or to move forward in faith wherever you are, and uh, we've got all the s- sermons online, so if you go to our website and then go to uh, the sermon page. Uh, I would encourage you, go back and listen to the first two in this series. The first one was really talking about what it looks like to have joy, a deeper joy, a better joy, uh, what it looks like to have a joy in Christ. And um, I would strongly encourage you to listen to that if you were not here. And then last week we talked about uh, the idea of family and what it means to be a Christian family. And it's very different from what we uh, think it is often. Um, And so I would encourage you to go back and listen to those. But today, as we talk about this, let me just kind of, again, just set up a little bit the premise of this series in some ways, which the idea of being on track does say and implies that there's a destination in our faith, that there's somewhere that we should be moving toward, that there's somewhere that we should be going, that there's somewhere that, um, that we should be thinking about, that it's not just a stagnant Thing. And it also implies that there is a track, that we are not our own, that if you're a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, we're thankful that you're here and checking things out, and we love having people that are exploring faith be here, and uh, we hope that this is always a, a safe place for you in that way. Uh, but for those of us that are Christians, what it means is our life is not our own. Our life doesn't belong to us. We don't just say, well, I'm a Christian, I can kind of do what I want, but there is a direction, there is a forwardness of where we should be going, and we do have somebody that is our Lord, which means our life is His, and we say, this belongs to you. And so today we talk about this, we talk about the idea of purpose. Talk about the idea of purpose, and this is a topic that gets talked about a lot. People may wonder, man, what is my purpose in life? Or sometimes in Christian circles, it gets talked about, like, what is my calling? Or, or you know, what am I going to do with my life? And, and that's a question that we think about not very often, but usually in different seasons it kind of comes up. What's my purpose? Or what's my calling? Or what's my meaning in life? And the idea of purpose is that it's something that we give ourselves to. If you talk about this is my purpose, it means, man, this is something I'm giving myself to. It means this is something that I have focus on. It means it's something I have direction on. It means it's something that is guiding my life in some way, right? If you said my purpose this year is to buy a house, that's going to guide a lot of choices and decisions and, and um, budgeting and all sorts of other Things And the idea of purpose is that it's something that gives focus, it's something that directs, it's something that you give yourself to. And if, if we want to truly connect to our purpose, which the Bible does teach that we have a purpose in our life, if we truly do want to connect to our purpose, the way that that comes is by connecting to God's purpose. So we're going to start with that. We're going to start with what is God's purpose in the world, what is God's purpose in the world? What is God doing? And, and here's what the Bible teaches. And we won't go through all of the different verses that say this, but, but what the Bible says is that God made the world. God created the world, and He created it good, and He and He created it for relationship with Himself, for people to enjoy relationship with Him. He He didn't just create a world and say, "Hey, this is awesome," but He put people in it and and made it so that we could have a relational capacity to actually enjoy Him and enjoy one another. And that's what God originally did. He creates the world and He blessed it. It says, and He and He said it was good, and He creates man and woman to to have this relationship with Him and this connection with Him. And then sin, because man and woman sin, and we do the same thing today, that, that breaks everything down. So there's now relational discord with one another, that we have tension, we've got strife with one another. And there's relational tension just in our own selves, right? That, that we, we're not, we've got all these feelings in our own selves, of whether that's guilt or shame or just all of that different stuff that we feel internally. 
And there's relational tension, you know, not just in relationships or, or with our own self, but with God also. We have discord with God that even for those of us who are Christians, that oftentimes even the idea of a God that would say, hey, I have certain things for your life that I, I want or to direct you in certain ways, that, that just kind of irks us a little bit. And so what happens is God makes the world, and it's good, and he blesses it, and he says, I want relationship, and I want harmony, and peace, and thriving, and, and all of this stuff, right? And then sin breaks it down. And so that's what happens in the first few chapters of the Bible, and then God's purpose in the world is to undo that. God's purpose in the world is to once again restore his kingdom, which means life with God as king, enjoying all that that would be, right? Whatever, whatever your political leaning is, whenever it's kind of political season, we think, man, if my candidate gets into office, life will be a little bit better, right? Life under his reign will be a little bit better because there's certain things about him that I think he's going to do or that she's going to do in this place. But imagine if God was king. That there wouldn't be any questions. There wouldn't be any, well, you know, they've got these couple things on their ticket that are good, but I don't know about these things, but, you know, best of two evils or whatever. Like, not, there wouldn't be any of that. It would just be, man, with God as king, with him as king, all that would happen there, wouldn't that be amazing? And what God says his purpose in the world is to establish his kingdom where people are once again restored to right relationship with him that then restores right relationship to everything else. But in order to do that, we, man and woman, humanity, we've turned against God. So God has to go after us to pursue us and bring us back into his family or into his kingdom. So I want to give you a handful of verses that really get at, and I mean, really the whole Bible talks about this, but just a handful of verses that talk about what God says his purpose is in the world. So we can go, what is, what is God doing? Here's what, here's what the Bible says. First John 4 says this. And John was a pastor writing to the church, and he says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So it says, look, here's how God shows his love to us. He, there's something he's going to do. He's going to send his son because he wants us to experience life. He sends his son so that we might live through him, which doesn't mean that uh, you know, he wants all the dead people to come back to life. It means that we experience a kind of life with him, life in relationship with him, life in his kingdom, life that is truly the way that God designed it to be. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the forgiveness or sacrifice or substitute for our Sin. So it says, here's what God is doing. Here's what God's purpose is. We are sinful people that have wandered away from God. We are people that are dead, even if we don't know it. And God says, I want life for you. And so I, my purpose is, I'm going to send my son to bring life to you so that you experience life. So that's how John says it. Here's how uh, Jesus says it. There's two stories that we'll look at just to kind of get different angles of this, okay? It says, now the tax collectors and sinners... And that's just, you know, broad brush, a bunch of different bad kinds of people. And tax collectors, it specifically puts in there because they were the worst. Even today, nobody likes tax collectors, right? Nobody's like, oh, man, you know who my favorite person is? It's the ice cream man and the tax collectors. Those are my favorite people. Nobody likes tax collectors, but back then, they were bad. They were actually, it's not just that they, you know, had a job that you didn't like. They were bad. They were traitors to their country. And they would often say, and maybe you go, this is exactly what's happening today. They would, they would take some money, and then they would take a little bit more money that didn't really belong to them. So maybe not much has changed, but um, sorry if you work for the IRS. Um, but Jesus likes you, so that's good, right? So this is every IRS agent's you know, life verse. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So all these sinful people, they were around Jesus. They hung out with Jesus. And the Pharisees, this is the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, this is really interesting. This is, if you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian for a while, I'm just telling you, we got to take seriously what the Bible says, that our heart's tendency is to be like this. In this story, if you're a Christian, you're this person. You see, because our tendency is to actually look at Jesus drawing near towards those that are people that we don't like, people that are sinners, people that make our life difficult, people that steal and 
hurt people and people that are, um, are rude and people that are all sorts of things. Like even in your mind, think of who has hurt you this week or who has sinned against you this week or who in your life. And that's the person that Jesus is hanging out with. And it says the religious people grumbled. They don't like that. Religious people do not like when God says, my heart, I want to hang around with the tax collectors and the sinners. Religious people hate it. They complain. They grumble. And you, if, man, if you can't associate with that, like if you go, well, I've never done that, then I think there's probably some lack of self-awareness. Because I know that that's true for me. That, man, I love to be around people that are not sinners. Because what happens when you're around with sinners? They sin against you. I love to be around people that are perfect. Those are my favorite kind of people. So if you match that, come hang out with me, you know. But then you'll be upset because I'll be a sinner, you know. And they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. He wants to give relationship to them. And so Jesus looks at that, right? And he goes, okay, I have a story for you. Anytime Jesus would have said, hey, I've got a story for you, you know it's not going to be like, and that story says how much I love you. It's usually like, oh, gosh, crap. I'm the bad guy in the story, right? So he says, okay, I've got a story for you. Let me tell you a story. Come, come gather around to Grandpa Jesus and let him tell you a story. So he, he tells two stories. And uh, here, here's how they go. First one is this. <clears throat> he says, what man, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, or rather think they need no repentance, right? So look at this story. This, is, this, this, so, this shows us, again, something about what God's purpose is, what God is doing in the world. Jesus is living it out in real time with people. He's with sinners and tax collectors, eating with them, receiving them to himself. And the religious people are grumbling and complaining. And Jesus says, look, let me, let me talk to you about what my purpose is, what I'm doing here in the world, what God's purpose is in the world. And I love this story because look at just the diligence and the passion in seeking out that which is lost. See, what have you lost? I lost, uh, actually, this ring. I lost this ring a couple years ago. This is a ring I got in Russia when I had done some uh, work over there. That sounds really secretive, like I'm a work with the KGB or something. It was uh, with, some, like, with an orphanage over there. Some work I did in Russia, I got this ring that I talk to sometimes. And, it, um, <laughs> and uh, so I, I got, and so it was a really special ring to me. It was a really special ring to me, and I lost it. And I lost it for like six months. And I, know, I checked everything. I mean, went through everything, trying to look through any possible place. And... Um, and I remember even having several dreams about it. Like I would wake up, in my dream, um, I had lost it, and in my dream was crying that I had lost it. Or, or, uh, or I found it in my dream and was crying that I finally found it. And I had, this was, it was a really special ring to me. And I diligently searched for it. And even in my dreams, I searched for it. And I finally found it. I think, uh, I don't even know. It was just a really random place. I don't even remember where it was. But I, but I found it. Um, and just the other couple weeks ago, this is on my wedding ring uh, finger because I lost my wedding ring. And apparently, don't give me any rings. And my wife and I, we, we went back to where we had been hiking and looked all around the ground and uh, looked all over the place. We, went, we had gone to a pho place and went, you know, called them and looked there and went, we, we tried to retrace all the different places of, man, where did this ring go? So if you've ever lost something that was important to you, you've, and, and you know, I'm just talking about rings. I mean, I see dog posters up all the time and cat posters up all the time. And, and um, I take the cat ones down and burn them. And um, <laughs> the, uh, um, the, uh, um, I don't burn the cats. I just burn the, the posters. Um, and Jesus says this. Jesus says, look, if you lost a sheep, if you're a shepherd and you lost a sheep, wouldn't you actually set aside the sheep that are okay? Wouldn't you actually set aside the sheep that are okay and let them be and go try to find that sheep wherever it was? And God is showing us his seeking heart. Look, he, he does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. That's this diligence. See, I gave up in finding my wedding ring. I gave up. 
And it's because it's important to me, but it's not a life. But God says he diligently searches until he finds it. I love that. And Jesus says, man, I am going to pursue because that's how much somebody that is far from me, somebody that doesn't have a relationship with me, somebody that doesn't know me, that's how much they, I will go until I find them. And then he tells a similar story again. He says, or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, this story is basically the same, but I'll just kind of highlight on here a different point. Uh, first of all, none of you have probably ever done this, right? You never lost like a dollar and then found it and called all your friends together to have a party, right? So it's, it's, he's kind of exaggerating to make a point, to make a point about his heart. To make a point about how, you know what, the woman losing a coin, I mean, look, I never threw a party when I found my ring. I mean, no, you never got an Evite that's like, what's the occasion? You know, I found my ring, you know, come to have a party with me. Nobody does that. But what Jesus' point is, is that's what God's heart, though, is over people that are far from him. There is more joy before the angels of God over one, just one sinner who repents. You see, God it's, it's not just that God is diligently, actively pursuing people, but there's this deep joy in God's heart. That God wants people in his family such that when somebody comes in, he throws a party. When somebody comes in, it means so much to God. When somebody who does not know God comes to know God. When somebody who is a sinner comes and actually repents and experiences life with Jesus. That delights God's heart. Look, if you're a Christian, the fact that you're a Christian means that God brought you into his family. And this doesn't go away. Like this wasn't God's heart towards you back then and now he's kind of tired of you. This is God. God loves you. And God loves people to the point that he rejoices. And he's trying to say, let me show you a little bit about my heart. The fact that I found you, if you're a Christian, the fact that I found you and brought you into my family fills my heart with joy over just one of you. Just one. God says, I rejoice that I've got you in my family. And my wife and I are adopting, and people ask us, are you excited? Because they're getting at a little, if I said, no, I hate kids, they'd be like, huh? That's weird. <laughs> But this, that's getting, that somebody would ask us that question says that there's an expectation that I should say yes, of course, to bring someone into my family. There's a joy that I'm excited about having them in my family. And God says, that's way more his heart. Like God, the fact that you are in his family, he rejoices. He says, man, I'm so glad I would throw a party that you're in my family. That's God's heart over you, for you. God rejoices that he got you in his family. And if you're not a Christian, let me just say this. This is, this is God's purpose in this world, is to pursue you. Because he wants to celebrate and have you in his family. That's how much God loves us. He wants you in his family. And he will rejoice when he gets you, or if he has you. So this is what God's purpose is in the world. Jesus says, let me tell you some stories. Let me tell you a story about a man that's willing to do anything to go bring back the sheep. Or let me tell you about a woman who finds it and is filled with joy. And, and let me show you a couple other passages that give us God's purpose. Uh, this is Jesus now s specifically saying what he came to do. He says, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose, or later in Luke, for the Son of Man, talking about himself, Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Okay, so both of these are very similar. The idea of the kingdom of God, or to seek and to save the lost, is to seek and to save them and bring them under life with God, or the book of John, that Jesus came to give life to us. All those ideas of seeking and saving and rejoicing in the kingdom of God and bringing life, it's all the same thing. It's saying God is wanting to bring people back into relationship with, to enjoy him, to know him, and to have life as it truly was meant to be. So this is what God's purpose is in the world. He's seeking 
to save, to bring life, to bring his kingdom to us. So the question then is this, how does God seek to accomplish that purpose? If that is what God is doing in the world, how, does he, how is he doing that today? Because Jesus isn't here anymore, right? How is God doing that today? How does he seek to accomplish that purpose in the world? Because originally it was all centered on Jesus. The, the purpose to accomplish all that is centered on Jesus. God will send his son to do this. And Jesus says, I'm here to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus says, I am in real time right now receiving sinners and hanging out with them and bringing them to me. And it's all centered on Jesus. Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to speak words that, that bring people back to God. And I'm going to do actions that bring people back to God. And I'm going to eat with people so that they come back to God. And it all was centered on Jesus. And then Jesus died. And then Jesus resurrects. And now Jesus is not here. So is the mission of God done? Is God's purposes done? Is God no longer seeking to save people and bring them in his family? Is God no longer trying to bring people life? Is God no longer wanting to have people experience what life in his kingdom looks like? Of course not. It's all centered on him. But now the way that happens is that Jesus says we are his strategy. He leaves, but we are now his strategy. That's why the church is called the body of Christ. And we talked about that a little bit last week and, and how that kind of relates to the idea of family. But think about it. If Jesus is physically gone, how does his purposes still happen? How does all the things that we just looked at, how does that still happen if Jesus is gone? And Jesus says, well, I'm gone, but my body will still be here. And it's this brilliant strategy. It's like the first MLM scheme, you know, of Jesus, you know, founded this thing, and then he brings these people, and then they bring these people, and then they bring these people. It's the first, that's, how, that's what his strategy is. It's to establish his body here. So even though his physical body that once was here in, you know, 33 AD and such is gone, the church is his body. And so we continue what he started. And this is what Jesus says. And so I want to walk through um, all um, the endings of the books about Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts, which tells the beginning of the church. Because after Jesus dies and he resurrects, he says, look, here's my strategy. It's you. And you will now continue what my purpose is in the world. You will continue it. You will be the ones that, that continue my heart for this world, that continue the receiving of sinners, that continue the seeking after sheep and coins. You will be my strategy for this. So here's the different places as Jesus comes back and instructs his disciples. And these are really Jesus' last words, which is important. Have you ever been around someone that spoke their last words? You, everybody leans in if you ever get that chance, right? No one, no one, if you've ever visited a hospital room and you know someone's about to die, no, one isn't, no one's like on their phone like, oh, yeah, what'd you say? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No one, I mean, you're leaning in. Like, what are their last words? These were Jesus' last words before he left. This is what he gave to his followers, those that say, Jesus, I'm in your family. This is what he gave to them. He said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, the good news, which is what Jesus was doing. And now he says, now I'm giving you the task to do that. Proclaim the good news to the whole creation. Or Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I love that he prefaces it that way. He says, look, all authority is mine. And now I have a commission for you. Go, therefore, based on the fact, that's the therefore, based on the fact that all authority is mine, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he gives them this task to make disciples, which is to say to bring people into the family of God and help them experience life with Jesus. Or John 20, 21 to 23, it says, And Jesus said to them again, this is after he resurrects, and he's talking to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, remember, Jesus talked about, this is, 
I was sent for this. I was sent to preach. I was sent to bring people to life. For God so loved the world, he sent his only son. And we looked at 1 John. God sent his son. This is love. All that. And Jesus says, look, as the Father sent me, now I'm sending you. I had a mission. It was all focused on me. It was all centered on me to bring people life, to help people experience God's kingdom. It was centered on me, and God sent me to do it, but now I'm sending you. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld, saying that as we speak the message of Jesus and his forgiveness, that people can experience that. Luke 24 says, thus it is written, this is Jesus talking, thus it is written that the Christ himself, the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem where they were. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father, that's the Holy Spirit, upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then, in Acts, this is the beginning of the church, Jesus says this to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. At that point, that meant Denver. They're in this small you know, locale with uh, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. That's all right around, but then Jesus says, and it's going to keep going all over the world to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And then I'll show you one more from uh, the book of Peter, which then, so all of this is kind of like Jesus' last words, and then you get to the book of Peter, where Peter is now writing to the church. This has already happened, and he is reminding them again of this. Peter says this, but you, and again, he's writing to the church, so you see these plural language, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession that he brought to him, that you, mo- that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, what Peter does is help us understand the logic of, look, once you were one of those lost sheep, but then God brought you in. Once you were that lost coin, and then God found you and brought you in and rejoiced over you once you were in darkness and he brought you to the light. Once you did not have mercy and God gave you mercy. Once you struggled with guilt and with shame and with wondering about your identity and God gave you an identity. Once you didn't have a family and God gave you a family. Once you felt like an outcast and God chose you. Once you felt like an outsider that, that didn't belong and God said, you're mine. You're my people for my possession. God is possessive. In a good way. Take a twisted boyfriend that's like, I just want you all the time. But that's God in a good way. <laughs> you know? Sorry for some of you. You're like, no, don't do that. PTSD. You know? Break up with that guy if that's who it is and find the true boyfriend, Jesus. You know? um, and he wants you to be his possession. He says, you're mine. I want you. All of you. He doesn't say it in that creepy voice. You know, so... But look, I love this because it says, this is, this, what is, this is what happened to you, but there's a so that. So that you may proclaim the excellencies. Have you ever been chosen to participate in something that was awesome? That way you would go proclaim it to other people? Like, did you ever get invited to a movie screening or something like that? Or have you ever been, I've never, I've always wanted, if you're a chef, uh, you can listen to this. Um, I've always wanted to be invited to like a restaurant opening, you know, where it's before it actually happens and they bring you in and give you all the awesome food. That way um, you go tell everyone. I actually did, I forgot. Um, there, not, it wasn't an opening, it was a restaurant that was kind of struggling, but they, they invited, uh, this is back in Seattle, me and a couple people to come and they just gave us everything. I mean, it's this huge dim sum brunch feast. It was the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, <laughs> sorry, Sarah. Um, and uh, and it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it was amazing, though. But the reason they did that is so that I would go proclaim the excellencies of it. And see, that's what Peter says actually happens, that God saves us. He saves us so that we would proclaim the excellencies. He saves us. He chooses us. He makes us this so that we experience it. 
oh man, God's forgiven me? That's amazing. God's loved me? That's amazing. God's given me life? That's amazing. God's my king? That's amazing. God's given me a family? Man, I want to now go proclaim his excellencies so that people would see him and know him. Once I was not a people, but now I am. Once I didn't have mercy, but now I do. Once I was this lost sheep, and now I'm found, I want others to know. That's what he says. This is what God's strategy is to accomplish his purpose. It's you and me. God's strategy to accomplish his purpose is you and me. And this is a big task. This is a big task to say, let's have this message go to the end of the world and let's bring life to people and, and let God's kingdom you know, come. I mean, that's a big task. And, you know, whatever the task is, you need help in it. And the bigger the task, the more help you need. Right? Like, so we, uh, as I've said, we're adopting and so we're getting our, um, the room ready for the kids. And bless you. And we're getting the room ready for the kids. Um, love her. Um, we're getting the room ready for the kids. And, um, and it's a big task. It's Ikea furniture and Target furniture. And yes, thank you. And um, I mean, it's a big task. And we had to put up this like giant map. And we didn't have to. We chose to put up this big giant map like sticker wallpaper thing that took forever. Um, so it's a big task. But here, here's the thing. Like we, I mean, we had... We had, I don't even know how many people. I mean, somebody helped us design the room, not helped us. They designed the room. We uh, had people help us put stuff up, had people. There's probably a dozen plus people that helped to put all that together. So that's a big, and that's just like a 10 by 10 room. It's a big task, need help. Now, God says, I've got a task for you. I want you to carry on the mission that Jesus had in the world. But hear this. He says, I'm not leaving you alone. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will receive power when God himself will come and dwell in you to give you power. And see, one of the names for the Holy Spirit is the helper. And he doesn't usually help with Ikea furniture, but he helps with the mission of Jesus. He helps helping our hearts to love those that God loves. He helps us have power to be sent as Jesus was sent. Now, this is important because we can't do it on our own. We need help, and God gives us that help. That's why Jesus promises, I will be with you always. Even though I'm physically gone, I will empower you with my Holy Spirit so that you can go and do what I'm calling you to do. So here's what this means. God saving people is not just God's plan. It is our purpose. God bringing people into his family is not just some nice idea that God has. It's not just his plan. It is our purpose, and it's not optional. So if you're a Christian, this isn't like something you get to decide if you want to do or not. It's for everyone. It's something that Jesus gives to us and says, this is my heart, this is my purpose, and I'm giving it to you now. This is why the great uh, Baptist uh, London preacher, he was known as the Prince of Preachers in the 1800s, his name's Charles Spurgeon, he said that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. <laughs> That's probably how most people didn't respond when he said that, but it's true. It's true. Because Jesus says, here's who I am, and this is what my heart is, and this is my purpose, and I give it to you. And if you belong to me, this is your task. And look, some people will even read everything we said and go, well, that's only for some Christians. But let me just say this. You better hope to God that's not true. Because if you are a Christian and you believe you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is specifically given for this. Jesus says, I've got a mission for you, but don't go do it yet until I give you the Holy Spirit. So if you're somebody that goes, well, that's, just, that's not for all Christians, that's just for some Christians. I'm the kind of Christian that gets to eat chips and sit on the couch, and those other Christians, they have to go do that. If that's what you believe, you better hope to God that's not true, because the Holy Spirit is specifically connected to this. So if you think God dwells in you, if you believe the promise that Jesus is with you, if you believe that God lives inside of you and dwells with you and all that it says about the Holy Spirit, you better hope that this is true for all Christians. And I just have been doing this long enough to know that some people think that. So maybe you're like, who would think that? That's crazy. And, and I agree, but I've been doing this long enough to know some people believe that. They think it's an optional thing. They think it's for some people. 
But I'm just telling you, read through the Bible. How do you get to pick and choose what's for you and what's for somebody else? And you better hope it's for you because all the promises connected to it. Most of God's promises to us in the New Testament of him being with us are specifically connected to mission. So if you ever think, man, I know God's with me, most of the verses that you're quoting or thinking or leaning on are the ones where Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the good news. I'm with you always. All throughout. God charges us, since everything was centered on Jesus, now everything is centered on his church because we are his body. We are the body of Jesus. See, if you're a Christian, your calling in life, your purpose in life is not to grow, to mature, to be holy, mainly. It's not to have great Christian friends, mainly. It's not to have great family values and make sure they don't watch too much bad TV or you know stuff. That's not your main. Like, if you think the Christian life is, I'm going to try hard to live a pretty good life and have a good family and protect them from the world around them and all the bad, sinful, evil people and tax collectors, and that's what it means to be a Christian, that's what the Pharisees thought it meant to be a Christian. And they grumbled when they saw Jesus going towards sinners. They grumbled when they saw Jesus moving towards those on the outside. They grumbled when they firsthand witnessed God's mission and his purpose. That's not what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian, we have a mission. We have a purpose from God. And look, if you're somebody that's going, man, what's my purpose in life? And how do I have meaning in life? And, and how can I, what's my calling in life? God wants you to have it. He wants you to experience it. You actually do have a mission. You do have a purpose. Your life, all of it matters and can be used by God for amazing and beautiful things. This is God's heart. And if you're not a Christian, let me also just say this. Do you see how much God loves you? Do you see how much God loves you that he actually sets up this worldwide strategy to fill people with his spirit, to put them in your life, to love you, to eat with you, to receive you the way Jesus did. See, God loves you enough that he didn't just say, hey, you can read about me in a book. But he actually says, I'm going to put my presence as close to you as you could ever know. That's God's heart. That's God's purpose. That's how God seeks to accomplish it. Final thing is this. How do we move forward then in joining God in his purpose? How do we get on track with joining God in his purpose? Because, look, if we're honest... It's easy to get off track. Maybe at one point you really cared about this and now you don't. Or maybe you've never cared about this in your life. I've talked to people that have been Christians for decades that would say, man, I've never thought or cared about this at all. I thought being a Christian was read my Bible, listen to Christian music, go to church. How do we move forward? How do we move forward? Well, here, here's where we have to start. Here's six things. Here's where we start. Start with confession which means praying to God and owning where this isn't true of us. Because if we're honest, many of us don't share God's heart in this way. If we're honest, many of us are more like the Pharisees that actually grumble about this or the effects of it in our life. So let me just ask you, look, this is between you and God right now. Do you want to obey God in this? Jesus says, I'm sending you out. This is your mission. This is your life. This is your purpose. So here's just the question for you to answer. Do you want to obey God in this? Is this your heart? Is your heart God's heart? Or here's another question. Is this your life? Like, if you just look at your life, is this your life? If, if, is this your life? Does it reflect what Jesus said our life is to be about? Is it? Do you want, like, I'm asking two questions. I'm asking a desire question of, do you want to obey Jesus? Or do you go, I don't want to do that. Like, just honestly, talk to God. I mean, this is step one. You confess to God. Is this your heart? Do you want to obey? And second, is it your life? Is it your life? I can tell you one of the things that broke my heart once was at this big Christian organization. And I'm not going to name what it was, but it was, no, I'm just kidding. It was a big Christian organization, and they had a couple different speakers. And one of the speakers 
um, talked about taking back America and family values and ah culture, you know, everyone's favorite guy, right? And um, and standing O, standing ovation, all these Christian leaders, standing ovation. And then another guy talked about this. That was the response. I'm not joking. And it broke my heart because it means we care more often as Christians about protecting our own and, 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 and keeping out the sinful people versus what we grumble versus Jesus' heart to receive those that are far from him and bring them into his family. So my, my first step here is just this. Confess, what's your heart? Really, just what is it? Do you want to obey? Is this your heart? Is this your life? There's often a lot of things that get in the way of this for us in our hearts. Maybe we're scared. And maybe we don't believe that God cares or that God has power to affect change in people's lives. Or maybe we just have a lack of desire. Or maybe we're just focused on ourselves. We wouldn't even so much say, I don't care about that. I don't like that as much as I'm just focused on this stuff. Or maybe we even have like a quota mindset of, okay, fine, I'll, I'll do, what do I need to do? Just give me like, okay, how many people do I need to talk to? How many people do I have to eat with? Jesus ate, ate with people. Okay, I'll eat with one tax collector. You know, like we might have just this, I'm going to check the boxes mindset. Not the, I will diligently search for that lost coin and rejoice over it. Maybe we're just too busy. Which, by the way, if, if you say, man, I'm too busy to live what Jesus has given me as my purpose, that should make us make corrections to our life. If we're too busy to be faithful to what God's given us, we don't use that as an excuse. That's a good thing to admit, but it's not a good place to commit. Say, well, I'm too busy. It's a good place to go, man, this is actually a problem. And so I need to make some changes then in my life. So I'm just asking you this. Here's step one. Will you talk to Jesus and confess your life and your heart where it doesn't line up or where you've gotten off track? We can all get off track. Like I said, maybe you cared about this so much a year ago. Surrender your heart to him and say, God, I want your heart. You gave me mercy and I want to be a part of giving mercy. You made me your people. I want to be a part of helping other people experience you. Just, conf just start there. That's step one. Confess to God. Step two is this. Ask God to help your faith increase in what he's done for you. Because see, Jesus says, if you're a Christian, you were lost and he found you, that he rejoices over you, that he possesses you, that you're his people, that he gave you mercy. And the more real those truths are to your heart, the more that then we want to proclaim the excellences, the more that you taste that amazing brunch that's given to you for free, the more that you want others. So this is step two, is to say, God, help those truths be more real to my heart. I know you saved me. I know you brought me into your family. I know you rejoice over me, but those things are disconnected from my heart. Help me. Help me to have a deeper faith that really believes those things and feels those things so that I want to be a part of what you're doing. Three is this, you just have to make changes, actual life changes, to intentionally think through your life and go, how can I reorder my life so that it really is being a part of God's purposes, to make disciples, to bring life. Anytime we care about something, we're willing to build our life around it. I've been on intense diets before, for uh, food allergies and have built my life around that. People I hung out with and what we did with our money and what we did with our time and, and what we ate, obviously, and what we didn't eat and built and where we went out to eat and built my life around that. And those of you that have run marathons and, and you build your life around the thing that is important to you. So I can't go through all the different specifics, but if this is, if you really do say, this is God's purpose, so it will be my purpose because he's given it to me as my purpose, you'll build your life around it. 
you'll find the different choices and the, and the connections that need to happen for that. And, and fourth, or I think fourth, is, and I, I mentioned this a few weeks back in Jonah, but is to, as we're talking with people that are not in God's family, just be honest. And I know I said that about, um, uh, I think, a month ago. And I was talking to somebody this week for uh, coffee, and, and they said, man, I, I took that seriously. And I've just been honest. And there's doors that have begun to open and conversations that have begun to happen just by being honest, which means, what did you do yesterday? I was at church. What were you talking about? I was talking about God's desire to bring people into his family. People like you. Just be honest. The more we're just honest, the more opportunity God will give to us. And fifth is that we do this with community. We do this with others, not just by ourselves. Now look, go do it by yourselves. That's great. But it's most effective with community, with the family of God. That is the strategy that God set up. That's, I mean, think about this. If the church is the body of Christ, and what are you? Maybe you're the arm of Christ. And if you saw the arm of Jesus, you might go, wow, that's a cool arm. Like, that's a really Jesus-y arm, and, and be drawn to it, or just freaked out, right? But if you saw the body of Christ together, you get a more clear picture. That's what Jesus is like, which is why God's strategy in his mission isn't just a bunch of lone rangers going and doing their thing. It's together, people that don't know Jesus can more accurately see Jesus when they see the family of Jesus that is the body of Jesus. Here's a couple places that Jesus talks about this. In John 13, Jesus says this, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He says, look, those that are not disciples, those that are not in my family, here's what will mark you. If you are a community, this is what we talked about last week, that is loving one another, people will know something about me through your love for one another. They'll know that you belong to me by your love for one another. Together, not just by yourself. See, if you're by yourself, you can be written off. Some of you know this, right? You've got friends that are not Christians, and they look at you, and they go, yeah, but all other Christians are weirdos. You are normal. And they, it's easy to write off. But Jesus says, look, here's how I most accurately represent myself. When you are my body, loving one another as a family together that then goes together. Or here Jesus says it in John 17. He's praying, and he says, this is Jesus' prayer. He says, I don't ask for these only, these immediate disciples, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word, that's me and you, that they may all be one, that they may be family, that they would be united, that they would love one another, that they would belong to one another. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus says the world will believe when we are one, when we are family. See, it's more effective when we actually do this together. That's Jesus' strategy. And so if maybe you're a Christian and you go, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm trying to kind of live my life and, and relate to those that don't know God, but I'm doing it by myself. Jesus says his strategy specifically is that we would be one, that we would represent his body. So even, you know, for those of you that um, come here on Sundays, man, we love having you here. And, and if you're like, man, I'm not ready for anything beyond that, that's okay. Man, we want you to check stuff out. We want you to visit. We really do. But we also want you to be a part of a community so you experience family like we talked about last week and so that out of that family and that oneness and that closeness, you then are able to be effectively a part of what God calls us to. And so I will also just say this. If you're in a community group, man, this is why this is so important. All of our groups every year work on building a plan to say, let's do this together. Let's be family and one and love each other together, like we talked about last week, so that the world sees that and can know something about Jesus. And then the last thing I would say is this, is you, you, you confess, you ask God to build your faith, you make changes in your life, you speak and be honest, you do this with community, and you do it as a part of this church, just on a broader scale, which looks like serving on Sundays, helping us to create this, giving, so helping us to create this. And so I would encourage you, if you're not a Christian, don't listen to either of those things. We just want you to be here. But if you're a Christian, 
We want you to be part of God's mission, even through the church, broadly speaking. And so give and serve so we can effectively be a part of what God calls us to. When we come and take communion, we remember that Jesus did this for us. That he shed his blood, he had his body broken to take away our sins, to bring us life, to bring us into his kingdom. And I want to show you this verse that Jesus talks about communion in as we take it. Here's what he said. Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. He says, this is what I've done for you. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Saying, My blood brings you into a covenant, a relationship. But look what he says. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Every time we take communion, we should remember what Jesus said, that it's for us, But, Jesus says, even as you take this, remember, this is supposed to be for many. Take it and receive and remember what I've done for you and how I've loved you and how I rejoice over you. And know that I want that for many. And I love even what Jesus says here. I don't know any other way to interpret this. He says, I'm not going to drink wine until you come to heaven and hang out with me. See, if you've ever gone out to a restaurant or something and a friend was late and you already ordered your drink, if you're a good friend, you don't take a sip until they get there. So that, and you're like, oh crap, I'm a bad friend, but well, that's how it goes. You don't take a sip until they get there. So that you, or until, if you're both there at the same time, you don't, you don't drink until their drink gets there. That way you can cheers and say, we're, we're together and we're celebrating. That is what Jesus says. He says, I'm not going to drink And I think they got some good wine in heaven. It's been aged a long time. (laughs) Some of that Noah vintage, you know, it's been around pre-flood. Jesus says, I'm going to wait. I'm going to, because that's how, look, because that's how much he wants to just rejoice with us. I'm going to wait for you and for the many that my blood was poured out for. Then, when you come to the feast of the Lamb, we will cheers. And I will say, I'm so glad you're here. And I will rejoice and say, you're here. That is God's heart towards you and towards me and for the many. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this truth. And I pray that you would help us to have your heart. Help us to have your heart. I thank you, God, that you would bring us into your family and that you would love us and that you would rejoice over us. I don't get that, God, and I know a lot of us don't because we don't feel rejoiceable. We don't feel like there's anything in us that's worth rejoicing over. But I thank you that in your grace and in your love, you pursued us and you rejoice over us and you want us in your family. So help us, Lord, as we take communion to have those truths deeper in our heart. And help us, God, to be a church that shares your heart and is sent as you were sent. In your name we pray.